Welcome to Tone Vendors Sound Bites, the mini version of the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hello, and welcome to Tone Vendors Podcast. I'm your host today, Timothy Muirhead. Renee cannot join me for this episode. Today we talk to Mark Levinson, who is the director of the recent documentary film Particle Fever. Prior to becoming a director, Mr. Levinson spent many years as an ADR supervisor and editor. He worked on ADR in some of my favorite films, including David Finchner's Seven and The Social Network. He also worked with Francis Ford Coppola on Jack, Catherine Bigelow on K-19 The Widowmaker, and many of Anthony Minghela's films, including The English Patient, Cold Mountain, and The Talented Mr. Ripley, as well as many other films. He's also a physicist, and now he's a director. Talk about wearing many hats. His film Particle Fever had a theatrical release in early 2014 and is now available to rent at all the usual outlets, including their website, particlefever.com. It can also be found on Netflix. The film follows six brilliant scientists during the launch of the Large Hadron Collider in Bern, Switzerland. They are in pursuit of a single goal, to recreate the conditions that existed just moments after the Big Bang potentially explaining the origin of all matter. I must admit that when I saw the film, I had no idea the director used to be an audio post-professional. The reason I originally contacted the producers was because the film was edited and mixed by the legendary Walter Murch, and I was hoping to be able to interview him for this podcast. Between sending my interview request and hearing back from them, I did a bunch of research on the people involved in the film and discovered the director's past as an ADR supervisor. So when I heard back that Mr. Murch was not able to do the interview, I quickly asked for a chance to speak with Mark Levingson, and I'm glad I did. Mark was in the middle of a big press junket, so this interview was done over the phone. And as a result, the audio is not quite as crisp as we normally strive for with this podcast. But it's worth the scratchy phone feed for the great talk we had. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Levingson. I'm a sound editor by trade, and I've worked alongside a lot of different dialogue and ADR editors in my time, so I know that the vast majority of them got into the post-production game via their doctorate in particle physics like yourself. (laughs) Even though it's a very stereotypical career path, I was wondering if you could go over how you jumped from particle physics to audio post-production and then to directing. Well, um, yeah, nobody, uh, I I didn't get the memo that you need to go to a more traditional... (laughs) you know, coursework, and so I just sort of started out with what was interesting to me and happened to be particle physics, and uh, little did I know it would have such a direct connection to sound editing. The The actual path was through editing in general. Uh, I mean, when I started to make the transition, um, I was going from actually very abstract particle physics to writing a script and just trying to learn about the filmmaking process, and the first film I worked on I was involved in pre-production and in the production, and it sort of became clear to me that the person who seen most of what was going on was the editor. And so I actually got involved in the editing. And on that very first film, um, it was a great experience because we did the picture editing, and then we did the sound editing. And, and we went right through the end, and I didn't realize that that was not a typical path, actually, either for filmmaking, where you know the picture editor might do the uh, sound editing as well. And so I actually was, in, you know, particularly involved in picture editing and sound editing for the first couple of films, and then uh, encountered the reality that on, on more bigger films, of course, the sound crew is often separate. Where I was working was up at the Saul Dance Film Center, and they started to get a real reputation for sound, and so there was more sound work that was coming in there. 
as somebody who was really interested in directing, I discovered that ADR was a way to actually work with a lot of actors and get experience directing as well. And so that was sort of the the logic that emerged in the end um, for continuing my career as a director, but also establishing this specialty, doing ADR supervising as well. And I ended up getting associated with a couple of people that really saw ADR also as their last chance to do a rewrite on a script even. In particular, Anthony Minghella, I worked with Walter Murch on uh, The English Patient and Talented Mr. Ripley and Cold Mountain. Both of them were very interested in sound and realized the potential for it. And so, you know, by working, doing ADR, I would really come on much earlier than than usual, I think, for ADR editors uh, because it was really still sort of at the stage when the editing was going on and we were thinking of how ADR could be useful in terms of helping with any additional story elements that needed to be tweaked and, of course, dealing with all the technical things, but also helping to really focus the story as it came into it uh, at its final stages. So that was the path, as I say. It was sort of uh, editing to dialogue editing, which I think dialogue editing is, is closest to picture editing. You're still very much involved with the tracks. To ADR editing, where I was really involved with actors and with writing new lines. So would you say that your knowledge with doing ADR helped you with your directing? Oh, absolutely. When you would do ADR, how often would the directors be in the room with you? Majority of the time? Uh, it depends on the director, actually. Some, you know, that, that was a, a surprise. Uh, sometimes the directors are involved all the time, you know, are, are there for all the sessions, and some directors don't come much at all, and, um, uh, which is an interesting process. I mean, uh, <laughs> I think ADR, I mean, I mean, Walter and I have talked about this, ADR is, I mean, there's a lot of technical parts to it, but I, I, you can almost say that uh, probably 80% of ADR is often political, uh, because you're also working with the actors, and you know you can be working with performance issues, and it's great to have the director there to enforce that. But sometimes they're not, and then you're really on your own, and you have to sort of get their trust as well. Because um, you know, from one perspective, they you know they don't know you, and they they've worked on this film for a long time, and there's maybe a, a certain suspicion of what your motives are, but you have the advantage that you've actually been working on the film and finishing it, and you know what's actually there, and they probably haven't seen the film, and so I think you have to establish that, you know, what you're doing is actually something that is going to help them as well and help the film. It certainly was very helpful in my directing career because you're working on performance. By working with people like Anthony or with Francis Coppola or uh, Tom Tickver, uh, you, you know, you're working with really good directors and really good casts. So you're working with some of the best actors in the world. And, you know, uh, having a chance to actually interact with them and um, work on performance and, I think, great experience for a director. For sure. So do you feel that you were almost destined to be a part of this project, Particle Fever. Like, it seems like there aren't a lot of people with your background that would fit into this film so perfectly. When you found out about it, was it just kind of like a light shone down from heaven on you and this was your perfect project, or did you fall into it in a different way? 
in retrospect, it does look like I was preparing my entire life for this one film. <laughs> um, I didn't know that, you know, when I was first getting a PhD and then working on narrative storytelling and getting to know Walter Murch and working with all these great people, that it was just one long preparation for particle fever. <laughs> I was in the fiction world, really. So um, this was my first documentary feature. So even that, I didn't. I was subconsciously <laughs> working in this direction. I really was not interested in doing a typical science documentary, but the idea that this could be a chance to use my narrative storytelling techniques and you know, working with characters and combine my physics background, it did then seem like a sort of perfect marriage. And I think that ended up, uh, ended up being the case. And I think that the fact that I, and then my editor, Walter, had never done a documentary feature, but we had worked a lot together on narrative fiction films, really was a big advantage. We, we approached it in that way. Um, and we approached it that way in the, in the editing and in, and in the sound, actually, too. So you've referenced Walter a couple times. You're meaning Walter Murch, obviously. Uh, when did you first meet him? So I met Walter probably over 25 years ago. And, and this is another you know, sense of the destiny, it seems to be there, because Walter was always interested in science. He's very, very... He's really an artist-scientist, and uh, he was very interested in physics. And when he... I, I actually had gotten my PhD in, in particle theory, and when I was just starting out in film, uh, he heard that somebody was in the building that had a PhD in physics. I was, uh, it was at the Solvance Film Center. He was editing Unbearable Light as a Being, and I was working as an assistant starting out in film. And he uh, asked his assistant to ask me to go out to lunch with him to talk about physics and string theory. So we actually met over physics many years ago and then developed a professional relationship. And I uh, ended up working with him, I think the first time was on English Patient and then on several other films. And, you know, I was the ADR supervisor, but as I said, got, was very involved in the editing room as well. And so we developed a friendship that was a personal friendship as well as a professional friendship. So when it came time to try to really pull this film together again, uh, I, uh, I reached out to him. And luckily, even though I had moved to New York, uh, because he, he lives in the Bay Area, which is where I had lived before, I was able to uh, entice him to come out and <laughs> lend his talents as well. I can see why you would want to have a picture editor that you trust and that has a good track record because this film, it's dealing with concepts that maybe the average viewer wouldn't understand. So it has to be a little bit spoon-fed to the person. But at the same time, you don't want to try and make it so simple that it loses some of the magic because that's also part of the film, that these are all concepts about the building blocks of the universe. And there's something magical about that. Putting the film together must have been a real trick. It was a real. It really was a trick, and uh, you know, I think that balance of the science and the human drama narrative part was the biggest challenge. And the great advantage of having a physics background already was that I could jump in. I didn't have to do a lot of background research about the physics. I could just concentrate on the filmmaking. And Walter himself is also so knowledgeable that it it took him very little time to get up to speed. I. I actually had a rough assembly together when he came on, 
But, you know, what, what Walter brings is that, first of all, he loves the field, and he did have a fundamental understanding of it. And our approach was initially just to work on the storytelling. I mean, we really approached it from that perspective of making a dramatic, compelling film. And we, in a sense, left the science until the end. And, you know, eventually, you know, became aware of the things that really absolutely needed to be, you know, developed and explained, and then would go back and try to find the right places to put that in and the right way to do it without disrupting the narrative flow. So that was the trick. I mean, because, you know, if you really stop and try to explain things, it tends to disrupt, you know, your emotional engagement. And so that was the challenge that, and it was just great to have Walter involved in that with me. So when you're doing ADR in a fiction film, it's considered part of the process. You're refining the script. You're fixing takes that weren't recorded well. But in documentary, ADR is kind of a dirty little secret because mm-hmm. everything's supposed to be, you know, as it was shot. You're just documenting things. You're not affecting them. There was ADR in Particle Fever, right? There definitely was ADR. And a lot of ADR is actually adding off-camera lines, putting in voiceover. I mean, it, it, in fact... It started to become, you know, one of the biggest parts of, of uh, my job on on big films. I mean, you know, even English Patient, I'm talented, Mr. Ripley. You know, we'd had voiceover, Cold Mountain. You know, we had letters, and it was very interesting because you know we got to the final stages in the post, and Walter and I just were. It was like we went into automatic mode. I mean, it's like you know, doing a lot of the same things that we normally do, where I would be recording additional lines, you know, writing off-camera lines, having them recorded, put them in. And in a couple of cases, actually replacing them, you know, was very much a very uh, familiar process in the end. And we did replace some things. I mean, I was actually very lucky. Most of my sound was recorded really well. Um, and, you know, of course, obviously, I was concerned about that as somebody who knew <laughs> what one has to deal with in sound and not expecting that I was going to be able to get my physicist to do that much think ADR. But it was good, and then we did do replacements, actually, as, as necessary. Did you have any moral qualms using ADR as opposed to in fiction? Like with documentary, did you feel like you were trying to adjust the footage too much, or you, you were just making things work? No, I, absolutely not. I mean, you know, look, there's boundaries, but you know, you have this not just in ADR, I mean, not just in the sound or what's said. I mean, even in terms of images, you know, I, I think it's a... It's a, you know, it's a fuzzy line, and my mandate was, and, and Walter had the same feeling, we are making a dramatic narrative film. Now, there are certain things, we're obviously not going to make it sound like somebody said something that they absolutely didn't say, uh, or change the meaning of something, or, uh, you know, invent a discovery that wasn't there, but uh, in terms of doing things for clarity, we had no qualms about it at all. I mean, you know, we were dealing with a very complex subject. And so, for instance, you know, you look at the lecture, David's lecture near the beginning. He gave a great lecture, and, you know, we realized that at at a point when we realized this could be the device to explain certain things. I mean, you you know, I always had this idea that I didn't want to have just this sort of omniscient narrator voiceover explaining the physics. We wanted it to always be sort of organic in the film. And so the first thing we realized is that the lecture was a, a good way. It was very entertaining. It's interactive. But, of course... You know, David's lecture was over an hour, and there were a lot of other things there. So 
you know, what we did was we, you know, Walter very cleverly cut the scene so that, you know, we were on camera for things that we really knew were right and we wanted to say, but when we would go off camera, we would, go, you know, often rewrite things and, and cut them down to be able to fit them in and keep the pacing together. And, you know, to me, I, this is this is perfectly acceptable. I mean, look, many documentaries have a narrator. They have somebody write it, and then when the film is done, they have somebody record it. This was akin to that, really, except that instead of just having somebody talking to the camera, we tried to integrate it into an organic scene. And so, I mean, I guess that's the, there's the crux of the difference. You know, in, in many documentaries, you have some sort of voiceover and narrator, and, you know, they write the narration at the end, and some actor or, you know, character records it, and then you cut it in. Uh, the difference for us was we would make these lines and record them as live audio, and, you know, because of Walter and my experience, we would make it match at production track, just like you would with ADR. So, I, and, and, you know, it turns out that some David in particular was very good at doing ADR. And so I think, you know, uh, you will not notice that, you know, his live audio production dialogue from the lecture really matches his off-camera lines that were recorded afterwards as ADR. You did a great job of it because it was hard to tell where you were doing that. So kudos. Nailed it. That's good. Yeah, that's, 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 you know, that's where that experience came in handy. So, you know, so that's it. I mean, you know, and, and you know, as you know, as an audio person, it's a different way of talking. I mean, you know, the way mm-hmm. when you record a narrator just cleanly into a mic is different than, you know, when we were trying to match David uh, in his lecture. Something that uh, obviously can be done. <laughs> so, when you're supervising ADR, do you try and match the mic that was used on set, or do you, you throw up a bunch of mics and then let the dialogue editor figure out which one works best? Which what approach do you like to use? You know, I'm actually less concerned with the technical aspects than the performance. Uh, you know, I mean, you go into a studio, you know, I, I recorded an ADR stage, and, and my feeling is generally the engineers there, the mixer, the engineers, they know their room, they know their mics, they've done this a thousand times more than me, and I basically let them choose the mics that they think works best. What I am con- concerned with is performance, because in the end, you know, that's the thing that's actually going to make it work or not. I mean, you can overcome the technical things, and, you know, the technical capabilities are so good now. I mean, the mics are so good, you know, the the, the ways you can tweak it and Pro Tools are so good. What you can't change is the performance. So my mandate, I mean, and I, I know, I mean, there are ADR supervisors that really do pay a lot of attention to the mics. Um, I, I never really did that much because I always thought that the engineers in the studio, they, they know their room and, you know, they wouldn't survive if they weren't using the right mics that worked and that people could use. And so they know far more about that than I so I, I'm not one of these people that actually gets obsessive about what the microphones were. What I want to do is I want to get a good performance, and then I, you know, I'm confident that we'll make it work technically. Any advice to someone that's going into their first session to direct ADR? How to approach the actors, amount of takes that you should maybe not go over, anything like that? Well, you know, it's really about directing. And so I think it's, uh, you know, there are no... There are no hard and fast rules. Every actor is different. Uh, I, I think you have to be attentive to that process. Sometimes people like to do multiple.
people take. Sometimes people don't. I mean, you know, typically, honestly, most actors come into an ADR session and they they really are somewhat resistant. It's often a long time after they've done it and, and they, they feel like they have uh, moved on in their life in some way. Um, you know, a, a lot of actors feel that there's something on the set that is a certain chemistry with the other actors or something that, that can't be duplicated and so they're, they can be resistant to that. Um, and I think you have to convince them and, you know, give them confidence that that's not true. I mean, because the other side of it is there's many actors that I've, uh, that I've worked with who, who actually love doing ADR because, as they say on a set, there's, you know, there's so many distractions. It's a very sterile thing. You know, it's done in these tiny little pieces and there's all these people around and there's microphones all over the place and, and, uh, they actually love going into the ADR stage and actually having a chance to perfect it. So, you know, there's not a common solution for all these types of people. I, I think what you have to do is you have to really explain why you're doing something, and you have to be attentive to the actor in terms of what their process is. And sometimes people like to do long lines all together. They like to get the rhythm of it. Others like to, to break it up. It's, it's directing. It really is. Now, if the director is there as well, on the one hand, then they are the arbitrator of the performance, but you have to often add the additional consideration of, you know, technically, is it right? Is, it, is the sync right? Is the projection right? So it's not as technical a job as I think a lot of people may consider it. Um, you know, I mean, if there are things that um, oftentimes you may just be replacing something just because of the audio quality. And then you're really just trying to duplicate the performance. And, and then it's about having a good ear, being able to know, does it sound right? Is the projection right? Is the inflection right? The more experience you have working with actors and working with performances and understanding the nuances are, are you know, is a better. It just helps your directing. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I, I certainly believe that. I mean, I know, look, I mean, there are directors who basically think that it's all the casting. They cast somebody, and then they don't really give them that much direction. They just let them do it. Um, in ADR, it is a little bit different because, you know, you're, you are usually sort of fixing things or addressing things. So there, in, in some sense, there may have to be more direction than there is on the set. For me, I learned so much about filmmaking in the edit room, even in my first experience. I mean, the, the, the first film I ever worked on was a film called Smooth Talk that uh, Joyce Chopra directed, and it had Laura Dern and Treat Williams in it. And I remember, you know, sitting in the edit room and just looking at take after take and seeing the incredible variability in a performance from an actor. It really, extremely educational for me in terms of directing. You're just, you know, learning what the possibilities are, how little things can change it, what things work, what things don't work. You know, you do that in ADR as well. I mean, it's a, it can be a very intense situation because you usually don't have a lot of time. You're spending a lot of money in the studio. You have to develop a facility of knowing, okay, that's good. You know, in how to speak to them, to change it, you know, use how to use the language that an actor understands. Uh, that's something that I think comes with experience. You know, I have done a lot of ADR. Particle Fever ended up really pretty much being full-time for me for the last six years. And so I've only done a little bit of supervising, you know, basically 
I mean, it's, it's been rather amusing because a lot of my former assistants are, are doing these shows and then they need somebody to just cover a session in New York. So I'll go in and cover the session for them, just record it. Um, I'm hoping to go on and direct some additional things. I mean, I'm, I, you know, this is, this is really what I want to be doing. I mean, you know, I love doing ADR, but I, I also, I mean, for me, ADR was also the people I was working with and I had some great experiences, uh, in particular with Anthony Mangella, who I worked with quite a bit who, you know, tragically died a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, moving to New York, I moved away from a lot of the, the sort of center that I had in the Bay Area. But, you know, uh, the hope is that I'm going to be having a fertile career as a director now. And I will use my ADR skills again as needed at the end. <laughs> For sure. Well, uh, if you're going to direct some more movies, I really look forward to seeing them because Particle Fever was a really great experience to watch. And uh, I wish you luck with your future endeavors. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you. It was uh, very unique to be talking so much about ADR in context of Particle Fever uh, with somebody who understands. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. Before we sign off for this episode, I want to send out a big thanks to the community for the great response we had to our last couple of podcast episodes. In episode 26, we laid out a bunch of new things going on with the podcast, including the new RSS feed and the website address. We also mentioned a couple of ways you could help us out, and we have really appreciated the response we got. Thanks to all of you who have left us a tip through our website and used our links when you have shopped at B&H and Amazon. Every little bit helps, and we appreciate it so much. Also, a big thanks to all the positive response and help spreading the word with our Dave Whitehead episode. I think it might have been our most popular episode yet. If you are in sound design and listening to him did not make you want to up your game and try new things, I think you might be in the wrong business. Dave was up to his ears in work on the upcoming Hobbit film, so it was super great of him to make the time to talk to us. One last thing, if you head over to ToneBenders.com, you can read a blog post I popped up there recently on a book that I got my hands on from 1984 called Film Sound Today. It has all these great quotes from Ben Burt and info on how they did the sound on Return of the Jedi. Just the pictures of the early audio computers are totally worth the visit. It was written by Larry Blake, and the book was great fun to read. My blog post includes pictures and quotes, so go check it out. Also, our website has a new section called Resources that has Renee's tips for breaking into the industry and some recommendations for other podcasts you should be listening to. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.